Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to be a part of this growing ecosystem of principled voices engaging in conversations that matter. And we don't mind having some fun either. So I am your host and so glad to be joined by a special, special co-host. TPNR audiences met Emily Matthews, co-host of the What's Next podcast and co-founder of Biden Republicans a couple of weeks ago. And we're fortunate to have her first-rate communication skills and commitment to bringing back principles to our politics on our own program today. Emily, nice to see you again. How are you doing? Good to see you. Always good to see you. It's great hanging out with you again. Well, you know, Emily, I was thinking democracy doesn't need a hero. It needs 333 million heroes. It's <laughs> a good line. That might sound familiar <laughs> to our guests today. I think I just read a little bit about that today. <laughs> well, today we do have two heroes. We're honored to be joined by Aaron Dobson and Greg Jenkins, the co-executive directors of the Franklin Project, an organization dedicated to promoting democracy and civility, uh, civility kind of I don't know. I remember that from some time long. It's kind of foggy, but no. It's old school. <laughs> old school, yeah. baby. Let's do it. Um, it <laughs> but the Franklin Project was started for folks who, just as an example, are unafraid of, quote, unafraid of diversity of opinions, want our elected representatives to work together to get things done. And one of my favorite from your, uh, I, I was reading your newsletter, want the shrieking, shrill, dangerous extremist voices to quiet down I was going to say, quiet the hell down. No, uh, <laughs> so that the rest of us can be heard. What a novel concept. And of course- Actually, we just want to send them into timeout. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> penalty box. <laughs> we used to talk, David Brooks used to talk about the kids' table, but then yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> the kids' table Back took up. over the room and became like, yeah. you know, yeah. we're, we're like just throwing punches and having a mosh pit in our, our civil discourse. Um, so- when we, obviously, when, when we learned about the Franklin Project, we were just encouraged by not only the clarity of the mission, but how spot on the needs they're addressing are, and also how truly impressive Greg and Aaron are personally and professionally. It really is encouraging. I, you know, I joke in, in this intro, but just to see true leaders uh, like Greg and Aaron emerge who are tackling these problems with such concrete prescriptions, and we'll talk a, lo a lot more about that all today. Aaron, Greg, it is so awesome of you both to join us. How are you guys doing? We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. This is this is going to be fun. You bet. You bet. Well, I wanted to start a little bit with your background and, and how you got to where you are now. Um, Aaron, I saw that you went to Baylor. Did you grow up in Texas? Uh, I actually grew up in Oklahoma. Oh. Uh, so I didn't go far away, yeah. but uh, just, just over the border into Texas to school. Did that break some hearts of some uh, Oklahoma fans and <laughs> some other Big Ten fans? Or uh -huh. actually, I'm sure it did. You know, you know the old rivalry. Yeah. My my father was a high school football coach, so I I lived the football rivalries all my <laughs> all my growing up years. 
Well, Aaron, uh, I think is a UGA fan. Isn't that right, Aaron? Uh, excuse me, Emily is a UGA oh. fan. Isn't that right, Emily? <laughs> that's right. I got excited. I thought someone else here was a UGA fan. <laughs> no, no, you know, but that's okay, Emily. Nobody's perfect. Uh, <laughs> War Eagle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, still burn. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, you went to Richmond and then Virginia Commonwealth. Uh, are you yeah. from the Commonwealth of Virginia? Uh, I guess most recently, my, my dad was Navy, so we lived all over the place. So we were uh, transferred to Virginia, I guess, three separate times. Okay. So uh, when it was time to go to college, I think we, we were actually living in, in station in England. And uh, Virginia was the closest state to, I guess, a residence for me. So I took advantage of the in-state discount and went to Richmond. Yeah, there you go. Now, uh, so Richmond Spiders, right? Yep. Okay. All right. One of my best buddies went there uh, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. It I thought it was bad until I heard about the banana slugs and the anteaters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beautiful campus, by the way. One, it's I gorgeous. Think, yeah. Yeah. So a point where I saw some overlap between you both, Aaron and Greg, is when you were on the advanced team for George H.W. Bush. And we were just talking before we hit record about a story uh, so, somewhere in New Orleans where young Greg and young Aaron, uh, they uh, was, was it you, Aaron, that was training young Greg? How, how did that all go? I don't know who trained who or who has over the years, but, but we've known each other and worked to, worked together for 35 years. So wow. I guess it, it went pretty well 35 years ago. Well, I mean, and, and I enjoyed it so much that, you know, I guess 15 or 20 years later, I, I eventually became advanced director at the White House. So uh, yeah, her, her work worked. There you go. <laughs> Now, just, just so our listeners, we did have Reed Galen on here, who is an advanced man, um, and described a little bit of, about it. But just for some of our listeners, uh, can, can you first tell us what advanced teams do? Aaron, this is I you. Got, you no. me. <laughs> I'll let you, I was going to let you, you're the pro. It's uh, advanced teams uh, head out in front of uh, wherever the president's going about five days ahead of time. And it's a team of, uh, I guess it's roughly a hundred folks, you know, all in, including a lot of secret service, a lot of military and some political folks like, like Aaron and me and uh, set everything up from soup to nuts and, um, you know, prepare for the boss. And what Aaron told me on my first day, uh, she said in five days, whether you're ready or not, Air Force One is landing. So you might as well be ready. <laughs> Do your work. <laughs> That's, uh, that reminds me of um, a teacher. Actually, this teacher just passed away uh, two days ago. She was 96, lived a wonderful, wonderful wow. life. Uh, I was telling Greg that I have some, a little bit of background in the theater and we were doing this um, big, important play. And, and uh, I knew that um, Brando was the one who originated the role that I was playing. Uh, it was however many, 50 years prior or whatever it was. And he did it with Tallulah Bankhead. So I was going on and I knew the stakes were high because my teacher had worked with Brando. And I said, do you have any, you know, words of advice before we, we uh, get this underway? And, and uh, you know, the curtain, curtain goes up and she said, yes, yes. Just don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. She used yeah. more colorful language than that actually. But, uh. It's funny you say that because the, the president once told me, all I expect out of your team, this is all you need to do is to do it 100% right, 100% of the time. That's all. That's it. <laughs> No pressure. Yeah, right. Not like the world is watching or anything. <laughs> yeah, Greg, I actually, um, this is, I had dipped my toes in this a little bit. And I'm always careful to share this because I, you know, with the Biden Republicans movement, I always get the, you're not a real Republican, you know, so I have to be careful here. But I have some friends 
at the DNC and I ended up getting to participate in the inauguration this year and I got to drive oh, wow. in the motorcade which was so crazy and my <laughs> friend connect, she goes yeah you'll get on the transportation volunteer team you know and they called me and they said do you want to drive in the motorcade and I was like I mean yeah of course yeah, so I, that, that intense pressure of you know I don't know how you did that for a living having to be on all the time and you know we're in the car he gets off of the airplane at Joint Base Andrews and they just get in the car and you go there is no like you just gas it you know yeah. and there's it's like you don't look at stop signs you don't you know and the, it's just a wild experience it's a good I, way to get around town yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i just the adrenaline i can't imagine doing that kind of stuff for a living greg you were pretty integral with uh the george w bush's second inauguration weren't you so you, you have a lot yeah. of experience in that level yeah i uh it's funny at the end of the first term uh so like in 2004 uh after the re-election campaign uh, I went and told my boss, <clears throat> okay, I'm exhausted. I'm done. Um, and most people don't last much more than 18 months because it's such a high pressure environment. But after 9-11, the expectation was everybody needs to kind of just like buckle down and stay in your job and muscle through. But after the, after the uh, election, I went to my boss and I said, okay, I'm done. I told you I was going to leave after the first term. So, you know, give me the name of the, of the executive director of the inaugural so I can send a bunch of advanced people that person's way. And he said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is the president has selected an executive director. The bad news is, well, that's you. So, <laughs> that's so awesome. take all the names you want and go to work. <laughs> you don't work here anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, Aaron, I was intrigued that you had very, actually, you both had very high level corporate experience in addition to the political role. So corporate experience with giants, Nike, Coca-Cola, and in politics, uh, one that's close to a couple of our hearts, uh, senior official and governor Sonny Perdue's administration in Georgia, <laughs> Emily's neck of the woods. That's right. Uh, actually, Sonny married my husband and I. How uh, no Little known fact. Yeah. Oh he had, he'd never performed a marriage before, but I was his press secretary or director of communications. And so he wanted to marry my husband and I. Um, oh. Of course, right after we got married, I left the the governor's office to go run the g8 summit which was in sea island that year um oh, but no sunny and i disagree on many things but we do agree that with his blessing i'm still married 20 years later <laughs> well, he's, he's apparently a good officiator because it took, <laughs> it, took. it did take it, yeah, did, it did take took. You know, it's it's interesting when I took my first corporate job coming coming out of politics, um, that was a time where most corporations said, ooh, we don't know what you learn in politics that you could bring to the corporate table to do to do anything. So the folks at Coca-Cola who one of them actually came out of politics, she's in Jimmy Carter's White House communications shop. She said, I know what they do. And so she hired me um, my first corporate job out of politics. And I realized then that most at that time, most corporations just didn't understand what a talent pool came out of politics, particularly if you've done advance or worked at, you know, at, at a higher level in politics, because you're just, you're ingrained with the ability to be flexible, to think on your feet, to um, be able to think outside of a box and not always follow the rules to get stuff done. Um, it's more about getting stuff done, asking forgiveness rather than permission. Um, and that was a time when corporate America was kind of going through this, this need to reinvent itself, particularly on the communications front. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's uh, a lot like theatrical marketing in that there's a deadline. You have a very, you, yes. you know what your IP is, uh, a politician or a movie in, in the theatrical instance, and you have this deadline. It's going to open on November 3rd. Whether <laughs> and, you're ready or not. Whether you're ready or not. <laughs> so, going yeah, up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Emily can certainly, uh, you can certainly appreciate that. You've, you've been on a few campaigns yourself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you go and this is actually for, for all of you, you too, Emily, like we, we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but how do you go for working for longstanding Republican stalwarts like the Bushes, Bob Dole, Sonny Perdue, to working with Howard Schultz? That's a really good question. We haven't gotten that one before. You know what was interesting about <laughs> Howard? Howard kind of occupied a space that I'll go ahead and speak for Erin because she'll slap me if I get it wrong, uh, that she and I had both kind of gotten to anyway which is national politics had become so divisive and so ugly and so mean. It became a zero sum game of winners and losers. There was no room for compromise. Um, thoughtful people like Rob Portman and Mitt Romney have no place in the world, which is absurd. Uh, and then Howard was toying with the idea of uh, national office, not as a third party, but as sort of a, an independent um, where he, and he would say this frequently, you know, I want to take good ideas from the, that the Republicans have and good ideas that the Democrats have and come up with solutions. And that was very, very appealing to me. I, I, I probably for Aaron too. Um, so I'll go ahead and let her speak to that. But that's kind of what drew me to the whole Howard world. Okay. You know, I think it's interesting. Um, Howard, having been a CEO, came in with a uh, very much a solutions problem solving mentality and not necessarily um, caught up in ideology or culture wars or any of the, you know, the, the pillars that we've kind of drifted to in politics today. He really saw that there were some systemic, serious, serious problems facing our country. And he just wanted to come up with solutions. Um, so I think for all of us that are, have, you know, moved into kind of this no man's land of, of political affiliation is that we're driven by solutions. And, you know, part of the problem is we're not demanding solutions from our leaders. And that, that is our responsibility. We can't just give them a pass. We need, to, we need to require them to come up with solutions. We actually found that there is appetite where we thought there was appetite uh, for a Howard sort of approach. Um, the, the group wanted to send Howard on a, on a bus trip uh, to you know, a friendly part of the world, the East Coast or the West Coast. And um, Aaron and I were like, Actually, no, why don't we put this thing to the test? Let's send the man to a red state and see how he does. So we did a two-day bus tour through Kansas, the whole state from east to west all the way. And every single place we went, all anybody knew was that, oh yeah, the former CEO of Starbucks is coming to town and don't quite know what to make of him. And Howard spent time listening and asking questions as opposed to lecturing and Ultimately, you know, his, his, it, was, it was the best decision probably for all that Howard not continue to pursue it, but he exposed a lot of interesting things from our perspective in the country. It's like the country's not as nuts as, <laughs> as a lot of people think it is. There's plenty of people out there that are ready for something else, a little civility, a little, hey, why don't you listen to me for a change and do something with what I'm saying? Right, right. So it's very encouraging. 
Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really interesting how much of our identity can go into our political affiliation. At least that's very much how it was for me growing up. And I, I you know, I wouldn't say that my principles have changed, um, but, you know, in, in 2016, I ended up, you know, working on Evan McMullen's campaign. This time around, I ended up starting a group campaigning for Biden, which I never thought would happen. I wouldn't have done that if Bernie was the nominee, but I think the country was so thirsty for that common sense, like I can work across the aisle, which funny enough, you know, it, it, when Biden was running, it was putting him at odds with his party that he had a history of, of working with the Republicans. Um, and I'm just curious with your background in that, um, you know, in a different era, like where do you think we went wrong to where just inside of the party, there was a shift that enabled the power grab from Trump? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think it is fundamental to where we are seeing ourselves right now. This polarization that has, that is happening, has happened, didn't just start yesterday. It didn't just start with Trump. In fact, Trump just became a, a face of it. It started, it started a while ago and it started slowly and it started kind of insidiously and it happened before people realized it, it could happen. I actually um, worked for Bob Dole when he ran for president. And I remember thinking, cause I, my first job out of college was on the Hill. And I remember thinking that back at that time, you know, those, the senators or the congressmen would lock themselves in a room until they came out you know, with a solution to the problem. And everybody had to give a little here and take a little there. It was just how things were approached. And I think as we've seen the fragmentation of community and the fragmentation of structure within our, our local environments, that has just fed and led to where we find ourselves right now. Um, I mean, and Greg can talk to this, you know, for hours about the, how the rise of authoritarianism actually happens. Um, and it does happen in this insidious kind of uh, way where it, where it is actually right before you, before you realize what has happened over time. Right. You know, it's almost too easy uh, to say, well, Trump is the problem or Trumpism, now that Trump is gone, is the problem. Authoritarianism, Trumpism is authoritarianism by another name as far as we're concerned. Um, that, that is a dynamic that is, not, that, is, that, is, that is inflamed by Trump and Trump supporters, but that's not why it came about. Why it came about was way pre-Trump, you know, a large swath of the country felt like they weren't being tended to. They feel like they're alone. They feel like they're disconnected. And a large swath of the country is looking for answers to real problems that affect them. Where Trump was smart was he gave them very simple solutions to very complicated problems. And his solutions have nothing to do with solving the problems. But when you get a nice, clear, crisp answer on one side and a really complicated, very nuanced answer on the other side, and you're, and you're hurting, a lot of people say, well, I'm gonna go with this guy. And it, whether it works or not, I mean, I, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to go with this guy. And, you know, it's uh, so there's a problem with the country, uh, not just the people who are spouting Trumpism. So we see the we see the the loud voices on the hard right and on the hard left who are dominating the conversation. Uh, 
we're looking in the wrong we're looking in the wrong direction. If we want to solve this situation, we need to start talking with the, to the people who are troubled, and give them a voice and let them know that they are not alone, and that the way to approach your troubles is not screaming talking points past each other. It's literally sitting down, learning, listening, coming up with solutions, and moving forward together. Aaron and I like to say that we coined the phrase pre-partisan. <laughs> whether, we, whether we did or we didn't, we're taking, we're taking credit for it. But you know, what we like to tell people is, listen, before you were a Democrat or Republican, you're an American. All right. of us, we have that one thing in common. So let's take partisanship off the table just for a little while. <laughs> and let's talk yeah. about something else for a while. Do we have anything in common? What are those things? Do we all basically want the same things out of life? Roughly, right? You know, we want to we want a secure life. We want our children to be educated well. We want to be tended to health-wise. We want to have a secure future. We want to be happy. All of these things are things that were talked about and thought about by the founders. And then mm -hmm. once partisanship just like explodes and gets so ugly and it becomes a zero-sum game, all of that stuff gets shunted to the side. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah. I I like that you guys touched on the kind of the breakdown of the community and the family, because we talked about that on the last podcast I joined, uh, Corey, you guys for, um, you know, I, Ben Sass does a lot of talking about that. Just there's yeah. no local politics, there's no local community. So people are looking elsewhere for answers. And, um, you know, I shared the story last time too. I worked for Secretary Rumsfeld in DC. And at the time he was working on the book uh, when the center held. And, you know, he, he shares that him and uh, it's about uh, President Ford, they were the friends in Congress before he was the president. And, um, you know, just what a different era it was that, you know, they were out there campaigning hard for him in the 76 election, you know, yep. against Carter. They all went to a Georgetown party together with people on the Carter campaign, you know, the night before the election and, you know, share drinks. And it's just, can you imagine that in, in this era? Um, and it's just an interesting devolution of, of what's brought us here. You know, the last time we saw uh, at the national level, <clears throat> hands across the aisles in any meaningful way, maybe the very last time was George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy getting together for education. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, it was probably Clinton and Gingrich. And before that, it was Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Mm -hmm. But not much since then. <laughs> uh, maybe some glimmers today because the- The, the infrastructure of, uh, bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's right. true. Yeah, true. It is true. Yeah. So. I don't. I don't want to do a touchdown dance on that one before while we're still at the twenty yard line, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are encouraging signs, though. Um, you know, there was a recent conversation that Chris Steyerwalt had with John. I hope I get the pronunciation of his name right. Potheritz. John Potheritz. Thank you. Potheritz. Um, had a really great conversation on the Hangover, which is under the Dispatch uh, banner of of podcasts, and. John had tracked something very similar where folks weren't really engaging anymore. At what point uh, did things like civility go out the window? Um, when did you start seeing signs? And even folks that were active in the campaigns of, of 2000, 2004, 2008 were sort of overlooking some things. No, 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 you know, well, we're driving the bus and we have some crazies on the bus here, but they're okay, they're really okay. And the way John put it was, but at a certain point, I realized the crazies were driving the bus and I might've been along for the ride. So I'm, I'm curious when you started noticing some symptoms that weren't just, um, wasn't just uh, out, out a little bit out of whack, but it was more 
defining for what used to be the conservative movement or what used to be the Republican Party. How early on did you start seeing some some of these symptoms that dominate the party today? And actually, I'll, after the 92 election, um, which obviously we did not prevail. So Aaron smartly left DC and I stupidly stayed in DC. And when, when you're on the losing team, that's not where you're supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> but I, I stayed there and the only job I could land was at a, at a very conservative think tank. And I didn't know quite how conservative it was. And after a couple of years, I went to my boss and I said, is there anything that we're for? Yeah. <laughs> or, or are we against everything? And he kind of smiled and he was like, you don't seem to understand how this game is played. Being against things makes it easier to raise money. Being against things makes it easier to get attention, which is what you need in order to stay as a viable organization. I'm like, well, what's the point? Is it to, is it to keep money coming in the door to be an organization or is it actually to forward policy? I mean, there was a time not that long ago when the Republican party was called the, the party of ideas and the Democratic Party was called the party of obstructionism. It's completely flip-flop the other way now. And you know, the Republican Party can be said as pretty bankrupt of ideas because they're spending all of their time bulldozing and stopping as opposed to getting things done. There is no benefit, as it turns out, politically for them to get things done. There's only downside if it seems like they're working with the Democrats. And that's an absurd way for a government to operate. Now, how does that change? Does, is the government going to change itself? Why, why should they? <laughs> the, There's the, no the, incentive. None. The missing, the missing variable in the equation is citizen involvement. And um, you know, Aaron might speak to the Franklin quote and why that's such a, uh, an animating feature for how we approach things. So when we were trying to determine what to call this movement that we wanted to build and create, um, there was a Franklin quote that really struck out, stuck out to us, which was, you know, when he walked out of uh, out of the convention hall and they asked, you know, so what do we have? And his response was a republic if you can keep it. And that wasn't just, you know, Franklin kind of humor. What he was really saying is a republic democracy is work. And we as citizens have to do our part and own our part of of responsibility um, in this American experiment. Um, but I wanna go back to, to the question you just asked really quickly. Um, I saw, where I saw where, where we've ended up was back in 2003, when I was working for Sunny Purdue that we talked about earlier. And uh, we were trying to replace the flag over the state of Georgia. And that's when the stars and bars were part of the Georgia state flag. And um, it there was so much anger and ire about changing that. And Georgia, you know, has always been a um, kind of a Petri dish for the, the, the experiment of democracy and civil, where civil rights meets traditional, more traditional kind of conservative deeply conservative values. And so it was just, it was ripe for, for a, a lot of anger and um, uh, distrust on both sides. But I think where I, start, I started to see the genesis of where we are today is there was a group of very active, very um, uh, aggressive supporters of keeping the stars and bars within the Georgia state flag 
they were so aggressive that they made threats against myself because I was the spokesperson against Sonny, against a variety of other people. And in fact, I had to have police protection for a while because it was, and that's where you started to see some of this evolution that was a cause of January 6th, is that, that those kinds of issues, cultural war issues had become so ingrained in how people um, saw something as, as needed as changing the flag uh, that we had what we have today. So, I, I mean, I think this is not new. It didn't just happen with Trump. It's been no. coming for a while. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a certain point when you realized that there were certain folks that were fighting for something, but it was almost like they forgot what they were fighting about. And the fight itself became the point, yes. you know, um, Good that, way to put it. yeah, that we just identified who the enemy is. It's not a loyal opposition. It's indeed an enemy. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, it's defined as anybody who's not bow- bowing down to the golden idol of Trump, you know, uh, but yeah. but I think I take your point, Greg. It's not just about Trump or even Trumpism. Um, there is this absence. It's almost like a commitment to anti-virtues. You know, like uh, Emily and I are Christians, and you know, certain verses come to mind that are very clear on what what uh, Christian virtues are. But they're they're common virtues. You know, uh, a lot of folk, even non-Christians know that know the quote. Uh, uh, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Like. W- any grown-ass adult can agree that those are good <laughs> virtues, right? But it's like now they're anti-virtues and being the opposite of all those things is 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 embraced and celebrated because, well, you know, the, they're the enemy and we're, you know, we're going to win the fight at all. It's a bare knuckle brawl. It's like, it's like tolerance is seen as weakness and people are being told if you are tolerant of other ideas that are not our ideas, you're weak, you're squishy. You're one of them. Yeah. So pick, so pick a side. And Aaron and I say, well, yeah, go ahead, pick a side. The side is America. Right. The side is not hyperpartisanship. Hyperpartisanship is it's like a cage match. I mean, it's it's interesting to watch if it doesn't matter, but it matters. <laughs> this is our government. You know, that this is this is we're paying you people to have a cage match and not get anything done. Right. This is not what we put you there for. Yeah, it's it's not just entertainment. This is actual democracy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, speak well. You used a great quote from Ben Franklin. Our mutual friend Tim O'Neill sent in a quote. Uh, you guys worked and collaborated with Tim when you were launching the Franklin Project. Uh, this is from Craig Axford in a Medium article several years ago. It said, "The greatest sin of all in a democracy is losing sight of the fact." that the ideas we disagree with, as well as the people holding them, are as critical to social stability as we are. So I, I thought that was a good way to introduce the Franklin Project a little bit more head on. Can you give us a rundown of what the organization is and the needs that the Franklin Project is addressing? Sure. So, you know, it, it, this the conversation we've had up to this point, I think to me, brings into clear uh, view that it's not hyperbole that our country is at a turning point. We truly are at a turning point. Do we choose autocracy or do we choose democracy? And it's up to us as citizens to make the right, what we think is the right choice and what we were founded on. 
um, the threat to democracy is real. Uh, and we're seeing it every day in large and small ways. I mean, you see it on the federal level um, with what happened by Congress deciding not to have a debate mm. about um, the John Lewis Voting Act or SR1. I mean, not even to debate it. That's right. what we're founded on. Um, it is in small ways what's happening at school boards with this conversation around critical race theory. It's not even taught in schools. Yeah. And it's a, just a theory. So why are people coming to blows over it when it's not even, it's a, it's a problem and a solution in, in search of a problem that doesn't exist. Um, and, and because of all of these things, Greg and I have many have had many conversations over time, and that is, in order to combat this, we need to increase civic engagement and deepen people's understanding uh, of what their responsibilities are, and what makes this great American experiment work. And so we created and founded the the Franklin Project in you know with. with the blessing and support of our sister organization over at the Lincoln Project, who are you know doing hand-to-hand -hand combat uh, every day to bring these issues into focus for many people, and and so we decided we needed a long-term solution to it as well, and that that's the Franklin Project. We like to say that the uh, it, it's healthy to look at Franklin and Lincoln together. Uh, we're tackling the same problem. So what does Lincoln do? Lincoln shines a light on the problem every single day. They name and shame. They tell people this, what's happening right now, that folks is autocratic. You shouldn't want that. Where Franklin comes in is now that you have been exposed to the nature of the problem, we're gonna give you some ways to address this problem. So we're, we're both tackling the same kind of situation. To go back to an earlier point about autocracy that, that Aaron made, what most Americans don't realize is that once your toe goes over the line into the world of autocracy, there is no example in the history of the world of a country coming back from it. Once you go in, it's really hard, if, if not impossible, to return to democracy, unless for some reason there's another revolution or you're overthrown or whatever. Another interesting aspect about autocracies, Americans don't think that it's even possible here. Americans take the stability of American democracy for granted. That's a huge problem. And what a lot of people don't realize is that those countries that are autocratic, unless there was a coup, they elected someone who did not run on a platform of being your dictator. <laughs> they ran on a platform of being your president. And then over time, like Maduro and some others, they take enough power and they erode the foundations of their democracy to such a degree that the democracy can't stand and there's nothing anybody can do about it at that point. So what we want to tell people is there's a time when it's too late. We still have time and it's not hyperbole and, it, and we cannot rely on the elected leaders to do anything about it because it's not in their best interest. What they're there to do is to keep or to acquire power. That's that, that unfortunately is the job that they've made for themselves. The only thing left is for citizens to get a little bit more involved and say, you know what, that's enough. <laughs> this is not what we're paying you to do. This is not what we want. Stop it. 
But before people can get to that point, they have to recognize it. They have to see the threat. They have to understand the nature of the threat. And to Aaron's point, they need to know what to be able to do once they see the threat. So it's not going to be an easy path, but that's the path we're on. Yeah, that's good. I mean, like you said, my, you kind of answered my question, my next question, which was going to be about how you kind of distinguish yourself from Lincoln Project. You did a good job of kind of articulating that. I know Lincoln Project has gotten a little bit, and I, I have friends over there. I love what they're doing, you know, but they've gotten some bad press around their messaging or even just their, you know, their tone and whether it's as civil as, you know, what you guys are doing. And I just kind of, how are you distinguishing yourself there? Are you going to, is the plan to kind of create grassroots involvement, you know, like with the pledge and have people get involved in local chapters and do more of that um, action item stuff or, you know. You know, we we are two separate organizations okay. that share a common goal, which yeah. is to fight autocracy and to raise up democracy. And for us, our, our, our goal is to increase civil and civic engagement. And so our tone and mission is complementary but different to what the Lincoln Project is. And you know we cheer those guys on every day, just like they cheer on our work every day because it's both paths are necessary in order for us to shine a light on what the problem and the solution is. We're focused on a solution that entails that citizens are the solution and holding our leaders accountable is the solution. Um, And that's where we spend our focus. And that that most likely takes a lot longer runway to educate and reinvigorate and re-energize people to take back their democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a time for tearing down and a time for building up. So I think it takes all you know all members of the team and the movement that we've you know everyone kind of has been in that in that corner. Um, are you guys going to get involved? Do you think in the 2022 the midterms or the presidential in 24? We're a 501c4, okay. so by definition for we <laughs> are nonpartisan. Well, you know what we can do and we're what we're going to do. So hopefully, if if we're able to get people to have a better recognition of what an autocratic thing is, an autocratic proposal, an autocratic bill, an autocratic person, then they won't need us to tell them what to do. <laughs> At that point, and in 2022, they'll be like, oh, well, that's, that's, not, what I'm, yeah, that's yeah. not what I'm interested in um, as it stands now. And also the more people are involved earlier, the better chances are that the, the, what the candidates that the two parties put up are more reflective of the constituency rather than sort of an extreme binary choice, which is which is largely the case now. Yeah. I mean, Aaron and I have done, gosh, between, between the two of us, eight or 10 presidential campaigns. And <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, and everybody knows this, is that uh, candidates are chosen by the party activists. Mm-hmm. Well, where are the citizen activists? So if you get party activists who are very, and uh, most of them are like very, they're very authentic with their ideology. It's just that there are no other voices in the room. So you get hardcore one side, hardcore the other side. This is what we're putting up. That's what we're putting up. Okay, now everybody else, go ahead and pick from those two. But if people were involved a little bit earlier, they can say, that's that's really not what we're thinking here. So let's have a different conversation and maybe come up with different sort of options for us on election day. If you look at it, it's dismaying. But the people that we put into power, let's say at the federal level, how often do they engage with you? How often do they really give a damn what you think? Every six years, every four years, every two years. 
That's it. <laughs> they've all got, I mean, Aaron worked on the Hill. I didn't, thankfully, I think, yeah. uh, but, but, but they, they've all got uh, constituent offices, right, Aaron? And so they give lip service, you know, when a, when a constituent calls and says they want this, that, or the other thing, but actually they're not interested in having a meaningful dialogue with their constituents once they get into office. Once they're in office, their job is to stay in office, not, not to get more nuanced thinking and not to, certainly not to compromise. I, I think Zoom was the doom of uh, actual town halls. Uh, <laughs> not, not that a ton of Congress members were doing real town halls, but I've noticed that uh, co communications directors are now able to orchestrate those town halls a heck of a lot more easily. Uh, so to your point, Greg, though, those real interactions and facing real tough questions just isn't happening. Um, there are, at best, there are form letter responses to any number of issues um, that don't really address individuals' uh, real concerns. You know, you bring up a really, really good example uh, that Aaron and I talk about frequently. Let's say we're in the post-pandemic world and congressmen do go back and do weekly district meetings. You know, if Aaron and I do our job, more people are starting to go to those meetings. Not just attend, but when they ask a question and Senator so-and-so or Congressman so-and-so gives their perfectly packaged, soundbitey response to a complicated question, what happens now is the constituent says, thank you, and sits down. What we wanna have happen is the constituent say, okay, that's an interesting answer. What doesn't get paid for? Where's mm. this money coming from? Yeah. What doesn't get done if that's what you wanna do? What about this? And by the way, can you argue the pros and cons of what you just said? Or are you just gonna give me your side of the? So if we make people a little bit more empowered, yeah. you're gonna put pressure on the people that are making the decisions. There also demand that there's a return to in-person town halls. I mean, we for too long, we have uh, abdicated our responsibility to require the people we're paying to actually perform their jobs. So it's incumbent upon us to say, mm, no, I don't want a Zoom town hall. I want you to come to the local library or the local synagogue and we're gonna have this meeting face-to-face. -face, and I'm gonna ask my questions of you face-to-face. -face. I mean, we have to take back our power uh, in this, this civics experiment that we have going. You know, Aaron, Aaron and I were Aaron and I were both communications directors in past lives. It would be great if we could say, Senator, come to your town hall and leave your comms director at home. We're not interested. <laughs> in that. That's awesome. Well, I, I've told this story before, I think, on, on this program when we had Christy Smith on, but I'll give you a great example of an elected official and how she engaged with her constituency. It just we we had about two, maybe three years ago, we had uh, the local home and garden show here in Santa Clarita. And it just so happened that my booth, uh, my company's booth was right next to Christy Smith's. At the time she was the uh, state assembly member representing our district. And uh, over the course of the two days that we were there um, at the Home and Garden Show, I got, I got a chance to shake her hand. And I introduced myself by saying, hi, Chris, she's a Democrat. I said, hi, Christy, um, I, I need to, full disclosure, I didn't vote for you. Um, and she said, that's okay, how, how you doing? What's your name, what's your business? And she got to know a little bit about me and um, we got to talking and, and I said, I told her a few of the reasons that I didn't vote for her um, because as a small business, the California Democratic Party uh, is often at odds with, with small business owners. Um, so her response was, you know, I have a small business committee. 
I'd love for you to come and join my small business committee. So I just introduced myself. I said, hi, Christy, I didn't vote for you. You know, and the conversation ended with her not only inviting me to the small business committee, but our conversations are just as you describe that I was, I was able to have a conversation. And listen, we didn't come out agreeing on everything, but what I did see is we moved the needle a little bit. I saw some of the things that we discussed work their way into legislation that she was working on. And that's all one can ask for, um, you know, I, but I, I don't want to go, go on too long about that. My, my own story, I was curious, what are some of the things that the Franklin Project is doing to engage citizens? Because it sounds like you guys are nurturing conversations a lot like this, neighbors talking to neighbors. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of that? Sure. I mean, a good example is exactly what we're doing right now, the four of us. Um, you know, when you, when you suggest to someone, let's turn down the heat and let's have a more civil and productive conversation. In all fairness, that's, a, that's tough for folks because they're just not used to it. So Aaron and I don't have a one, one size fits all approach to this at all. Um, we're, we're trying everything. We, we both you know, work in kind of the tech sector. So we're used to the ethos of move fast, break things, try stuff, see what works, ditch what doesn't, embrace what does, find best practices. We are very much in that space. So there's several things that we're doing initially. Um, so initially we'll be, we have conversation starters, for example, on our website. And we'll take a topical issue. And for example, we'll say on, on voting rights, let's say in Georgia, everybody's, everybody's reading about it. So we'll start off by saying, here's what the Democrats are telling you that you've probably already read. And here's what the Republicans are telling you that you've already read. Now let's go a level deeper. Here's what the Democrats might not be telling you. And here's what the Republicans might not be telling you. Let's go a level yeah. deeper than there. Here's what some Democratic yeah. motivations might be that they're not talking about, same on the Republican side. So dig a little deeper have a smarter, fuller conversation. And we don't care what side you come out on. Just be a little smarter about it. So that's one thing. Another thing is if, if we do, if Franklin does its job right, it's going to be a lot less from Franklin out to the people and a lot more from the people to the people. So a big part of that is partnerships. When we expose people to partners in this pro-democracy space that are also doing good work, that sort of telegraphs to people out there Oh, it's more than just Franklin. There's lots of people out there. And Franklin is highlighting some of their great work. We're not pretending to know everything in the world. That's ridiculous. And there's plenty of good work out there. So when I take some of it, amplify their work, they can amplify our work. The more people become exposed to the fact that it's actually okay yeah. <laughs> to have a conversation and say, you know, I firmly believe this, but I concede this point. You actually made a really good point without feeling like a fraud or a right. traitor which is right. what people feel like. It's absurd. And, you know, there's lots of other things that we're doing. Maybe, Aaron, there's, there's a few that I'm... I, I mean, I think just, just to start from the very beginning, the first thing we're asking people to do is take our democracy pledge and join our democracy core. And just, we feel like people acknowledging that there's a problem and committing to the pledge, or if not in fact, by signing it on the website in theory of like, you know, I'm actually going to focus on doing those things in my everyday life. Then we feel that allows us to build what we're calling the democracy core, which is this community of like-minded citizens who are committed to um, strengthening our civic engagement and learning more about what the challenges we face are and not just letting it be soundbite answers. So there's, so there's 
there's, you know, there's really two ways. It's the partnerships and highlighting partnerships, and then it's empowering and encouraging individual citizens to to join our democracy core. That gives a scale to then turn the mirror back on politicians and on our civic leaders and ask tough questions and ask them to be better leaders than they are today. And when, and citizens, people need to feel as though they're not being talked to. They need to, they need to feel some skin in the game. And a big part of what Franklin is doing or will be doing once this, you know, really starts to get some traction is now you tell us what's working. You tell us what's working. We will then tell everybody else that it's working. And this can be an example for people who are just like you in Des Moines and, you know, Tuscaloosa all over the place. It, it, it should not be a megaphone from Franklin to the world. In the beginning, there's going to be a lot of that. But then once, it's, once the fire starts to get going, once the pump gets primed, uh, our strategy is to then start to acquire from the field uh, best practices. People need to see themselves in civic engagement. And if you see your neighbor doing something or you see another community doing something, then you can put yourself in that and go, ah, that isn't that hard. I can do that. And I think that that, you know, like leads to like, and if people can see themselves within this, this effort, then they can then up their game. You know, we all have to, we all have to man up or woman up uh, in this fight. We can't let it go on much longer. I need to tell you that you guys are already having an effect, at least with me. Uh, I've been, over the last several months, I've been submitting op-eds and essays to our regional newspaper and our regional media company, a radio radio station. And the one that I just submitted, as I was prepping for for our conversation, uh, the most recent one that I I just submitted, I think it was yesterday, uh, was... um, solutions to uh, to end to help end our uncivil war part one and part one was first of all a confession that there have been many times that I spent hours and hours having one of those you know poop throwing contests <laughs> you know uh, at, on Twitter or wherever it or Facebook or wherever it might have been and I had nothing in common with this individual I didn't know this individual other than what their name was on the social platform and what they'd been saying on that thread. But as opposed, so the, the, um, the, the latest essay was about how instead of doing that, take that five minutes when I get out of the car and I see my name, neighbor Angel, uh, my next door neighbor Angel, and say, hey, how's the weather? How about the construction down the street? You know, or yeah, my kid's graduating. That's a sign on the, or on my walks in the morning, I, there are several folks that I start to see and just take the time to, to ask their name. And, you know, this one gal that I see uh, at least once or twice a week, her name's Heidi, and we all we have a habit of uh, telling each other, oh, "Did you see any snakes this morning?" Yeah, I saw a snake up by, uh, you know, <laughs> or um, there's uh, there's Rosa and and uh, Pete. Uh, they're from Italy, so I call them Pierino. Um, <laughs> and that's the that's the best one. So because Pete and I got to know each other, his dog Bella, um, and uh, I, it, we just got to talking over several weeks and we'd seen each other over several months. Pete invites me over to dinner one night. I found out he's a great cook and his wife, Rose is a great baker and uh, went over for dinner and playing the whole time on, on a couple TVs was Hannity. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm not, you know, listen, I, I listen to Hannity because I, I want to know a lot of my friends are fans. So I want to know what, what he's uh, what subjects he's covering, but uh, you know, 
I didn't know Pierino is like a, a Trump fan and a, you know, but by that time it really didn't matter because I knew Pete, I knew he's a great cook. I knew his wife Rosa and his sweet dog and like we're buddies. He's not some crazy, you know, bowing down to a Trump idol, wacko, bigot. Like he's none of these things. He's my buddy, he's my pal, he's my neighbor. So that um, I reflected on that be uh, largely because of what I'd been studying up on the Franklin project. And I realized, you know, this is more the right direction rather than the, the, the social rhetorical wars and the bomb throwing contests there. So, you know, Corey, you are hitting on such an important thing that, that Aaron and I have been talking a lot about recently, which is community and the, the, the important dynamics of solid community which lends itself to, to people being able to insist on better from themselves, from their friends, from their community, and ultimately from their leaders. And in America, community has now turned into MAGA is one community, hard left is another community, Republican. I mean, it's, it's as opposed to, is there another community that we can talk about that we all have maybe a little bit more in common with? And it's yes, we're Americans, and we all and we we have some some fundamental values in common. Let's dwell in that land for a little while. And Aaron and I, you know, one one of the folks in the early days was asking, "What is your met? How are we going to be able to judge your metrics of success?" And we're like, "Okay, unlike a lot of folks who are going to feed you a line about we're going to change the world, a lot of what we're going to be doing is is baby steps, which." will start to build a momentum. I'm so glad you mentioned that your, your local newspaper in Santa Clarita, we on purpose are not all that interested in talking to the New York Times or the Washington Post. We want to go to where people are consuming their information and where people and what influences people in local communities. Erin talks beautifully about the community <clears throat> she grew up in, not the physical community, but, but the aspects of community. And we have two different kinds of community. Hers was rural and mine was military background. And there are, there are very different worlds, but very, very similar aspects of what makes those communities so powerful and so meaningful. And so much of that is gone. Um, you know, I'm not going to speak to Aaron's experience, but Mine was, you know, every 18 months, we'd be transferred to a new place and you were presented with, here is your new community and none of you know each other and you're all going to be gone another 18 months. Make the best of it. For my whole growing up life, that's what life was like. So what did you have to cling on to? You know, you're all in this one fenced in area in this Navy base. And when the ship goes to sea and all the dads at the time, it was just dads. When all the dads are gone, it's just the wives and the kids and build a support system, make it happen because it matters. If someone's in trouble, help them. If someone's running out of money, feed them. You just do it. And there's so many great skin of the game things that, that emerge from that, that turns community into a force. Well, I, I mean, I think what this highlights for me more than anything is it goes back to fundamentals. We have more in common than we want to admit and we share more from a value perspective than we want to acknowledge in our current polarized situation. I grew up completely, I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma. My dad was the high school football coach. Um, our commonality was church on Sunday and Friday night 
football games yeah. and everything else in between revolved around that. I had extended family all around me, you know, uh, my father having been a teacher, you know, we had the football team that lived at our house, you know, it was just, it, it was a shared kind of existence that only happens in rural communities or happened at rural communities at that time. But nothing has changed in that if we strip away all of the, the culture war and the polarization, it is still, you know, remember the tenets of, of how you grew up, which is um, don't say something about someone else that you wouldn't want said about yourself. You know, there's just basic fundamentals, values of look after your neighbor, you know, look out for them. Uh, what's the strength of my community? It's usually people. Yeah. Um, and we have to go back to recognizing that. I saw some guy being interviewed the last couple of days and they said, why are you a MAGA person? And I don't know what I was expecting to hear this guy say, but what he said was actually really, really illuminating and very sad. He said, I, I, I became part of that because I didn't have anything else. Nobody was listening to me. I felt alone. I wanted to feel like I was part of something. Now, what he didn't say was, I want to build a wall, or I want to exclude these people, or I want to say nasty things about these people. So there are some motivations that are not, that are, there are needs out there that are not being met. And Aaron and I are, are under no illusions that, that this should be, should or could be a return to some sort of Norman Rockwell kind of world. That's not the point. And the, the point is there are aspects to community, if we can have it that are so powerful. I mean, her experience and my experience were completely different, but a lot of things in common in terms of the value that we get out of community. And that can be translated. I mean, that gives you scale. That makes you feel like you're part of something. And when you feel like you're part of something, you then feel like you can have an impact, which is what we're trying to get people to think. Yeah. I think, you know, an important, we actually had Joe Walsh on my podcast this week and um, it was just released today, but he, he was talking about, or we both were talking about the importance of forgiveness and all of this. I think, you know, for me, and well, at least I'm speaking for myself, I've had a lot of bitterness towards the MAGA part of the party that took over. And, you know, it, it's going to take time to um, heal those divisions, but part of that is going to have to be me seeing their perspective too. It used to be, oh, try to see the left's perspective, try to, you know, and for me, I think my bigger, bigger struggle is with the people that kind of broke our party apart. Um, you know, and I just think that's kind of an important thing, but that goes along with what you're saying about loving your neighbors, eating together, finding common solutions and seeing them, you know, seeing their humanity as well. Emily, what, what did we forget to ask? I feel like we covered a lot of ground, but I, I also feel like we could go on for another couple hours at least <laughs> yeah. just talking about all this stuff. Um, I'm sure we forgot a couple things. What did we forget, Emily? Let me see. You know, how can we find each of you guys? Are you guys on Twitter? You know, what, what, can, what can our listeners do to support the Franklin Project and, and support you guys? Sure, thank you. Well, for, I would say first go to franklinproject.us, take the pledge, at least read the pledge um, and commit to doing those things. That's, that's all we ask is for people to start thinking about where do I show up? So franklinproject.us. And Greg, you had mentioned that there was some uh, a special campaign for 4th of July. Yeah, so starting on Monday uh, through the 4th of July, uh, we are uh, highlighting the work of other organizations uh, that are doing some really terrific stuff in the pro-democracy space and, and the civics space. 
So uh, on Twitter, we're at Franklin Proj, P-R-O-J-U-S. On Facebook, we're at the Franklin Project US. And on Instagram, we are at franklinproject.us. Excellent. Um, and Emily, how, wait, actually, we forgot to ask one of the big questions. Do you have any questions for us? <laughs> actually, okay. yes. Oh, okay. oh crap. Okay. I mean, no, no, actually, if, 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 we're, if we're true to ourselves, that we're not, we don't want to be the only ones talking, we'd love to hear from you what you think are good approaches. And actually, if you're, if you're game for it, we'd love to get the uh, article that you submitted to the local paper, if it's okay with the local paper. And, uh, and take a peek at it. And if it makes sense, we'd like to get it out there to our, our folks. Yeah, the signal doesn't have any exclusivity um, requirements. So I'm happy to share the, the, the content, uh, the, the, the text of it. But I have a feeling um, we have an even better one coming out. Emily and I are working on, uh, we're working, collaborating on something together. Um, it's loosely titled, Can We as Christians Vote for a Democrat? So it's just an explanation wow. of, you know, a lot of us, you know, once I became a Christian a couple decades ago, um, I, I, had, I had conservative leanings from the get-go. I, I always say that I, I grew up in a family kind of like, um, what was the Michael J. Fox show in the 80s? The uh, Family Ties. Family Ties, kind of like Family Ties, but I was more of the Alex P. Keaton of the family. You know? <laughs> but then you when, Reaganite I you. <laughs> when, I, when I became a Christian, that, that even more so, like it just was assumed that, well, of course we're all Republicans, but you know, can we as Christians who, you know, really believe that the Bible is authoritative and, and really take these things seriously, can we vote for, for a Democrat? Um, so we're gonna explore that in an essay. We'll share that with you as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I didn't mean to step on you, Emily. Do, what, how would you answer Greg's question? Yeah, I think setting up grassroots chapters is a really great way. You know, I worked at Stand Up Republic in DC and that was a really great way for, you know, people are always saying we want to get involved, but we don't know how. And having the grassroots chapters kind of gave people, um, you know, a community to come together and say, hey, I feel this way. And here are some action items, you know, if we would put out a call to um, actually, I don't know if you guys can do that with the 501c4, but to put out a call to congressmen when there's some legislation to push or something that no, you can't do that because it's political. Um, but getting people well, in communities to meet and they can go over those pledges because with the United America, we did a lot of that as well. Right. So one of the things that Ben Franklin did was create Junto clubs. Um, and you know, we we that is that is absolutely one of the things that is is in our collective to begin uh, starting. And you know, book clubs have existed for a long time, why can't we have democracy clubs or juntos yeah. for people to get together and talk about some of these things? You know, we provide ground rules of how to do it and how to keep it an open conversation and understand how to concede a point. Uh, Cause a lot of us have forgotten how to, how to do that. Yeah, sounds subversively civil. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about subversive civil civility. I love it, I, I like, love it. I like that. That's the Put first the uh, round of bumper stickers. Exactly. <laughs> Aaron, did you have any questions for us? Uh, you know, I'm curious because of the direction of your of your podcast. When you guys start to travel down what might be difficult conversations around religion or politics, but I'm actually more curious about religion. Um, how, do, how do you keep it civil? I mean, how do you make sure that people understand 
you, you really want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. That's actually a question for Corey. I'm actually just guest hosting today, but I have my, my own pod, What's Next, which goes into the, the different strategies for kind of reclaiming a healthy GOP. But this is, it's been fun to join. Emily, today. but you have a great story too at, at the intersection of religion and politics. I mean, we have these conversations in our churches and sometimes it goes better than others. Um, but this, in a way, this conversation started about 20 something years ago when I first became a Christian. I grew up in a very observantly Jewish household. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, you know, we weren't just these once a year Jews that showed up for Yom Kippur and uh, Rosh Hashanah. You know, we kept kosher and Shabbos and the whole, the whole Gansa Megillah, as they say. So <laughs> when, I, um, when I told my dad, uh, my, I told both my parents, obviously, but when I told my dad, um, it, it took a while for us to even start talking about it. I'm gonna get emotional talking about this. Um, <laughs> Uh, it took us a while to even start talking about it, but he sent me about a month after I told him this 10 page single spaced letter telling me all the reasons why it was wrong to become a Christian. Um, and he came at it from uh, social filial obligation, political, historical, emotional, uh, just so many different angles. And what it did was it sparked a conversation because I began to answer him um, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, and before I could get to the end of the letter, he had responses to my responses and <laughs> we just got to talking. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we're a heck of a lot closer in our beliefs uh, because one of the things that we did along the way was, you know, he would send me, um, we would send each other literature uh, so that we had a common reference point to have the next conversation. And at first, listen, admittedly, it was much more uh, hard hitting. You know, one of the treatises he sent me was you take Jesus, I'll take God, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> but you know, over time, he's read the New Testament, he's read C.S. Lewis, he's read N.T. Wright, he's read some great um, Stanley Hauerwas, you know, I've read um, one of my favorite uh, Jewish, non-Christian Jewish theologians, uh, Heschel, is just such a treasure trove. And, you know, what's happened is there are things that we still disagree on. You know, like the whole Jesus thing is pretty central. Um, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even, even my dad's view of Jesus at this point um, is, is really nuanced. You know, he doesn't think that he was um, the Messiah, but he thinks he was a Messiah candidate. And he thinks that um, he was a prophet in the spirit of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Like he has such nuanced views as do I about, uh, I think that I might have been more fundamentalist in my views if it wasn't for my conversations with my dad. And I think that's a good thing. I can still be an evangelical without being a, a fundamentalist. Um, so anyway, I, I, that's kind of a longer answer to your question, but that is really great training to have those hard conversations uh, but if we're committed, okay, this is the short answer to your question. My father actually had it. He said at a certain point, he realized he was more committed to the relationship than he was to being right about a certain point, even something as that's important. That's amazing. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Even something as important as me being, uh, me being a Christian or not. So that's, that's the short amazing. answer. Yeah. Did you see uh, uh, General Milley's response I did. yesterday? Oh man, how amazing um, that was, was. It was so amazing to have someone of his stature say, you know, I've read Lenin. Yeah. I, I've, I, Marx that does not and Engels make read, yeah, yeah. Marx. It, yeah. That doesn't make me a communist. Right. It makes me more understanding of other people. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, that it was the, one of the best put downs I have ever. <laughs> 
I've witnessed in a long time. But you know, Corey, great. what you were talking about, I think is so important because it really gets to the, to the fundamental nature of what conversation should be. Is it lecturing past each other or is it listening to each other and, and doing a little bit of learning? You know, for a couple of years, my roommate um, was a Calvinist. Well, he still is a Calvinist, but for a couple of years, we were roommates. He's a Calvinist. I'm Catholic, uh, questioning Catholic. Um, but he felt the need to convert me and to actually to get me to abandon Catholicism. And um, we would have, it would start off as very, on the surface, it would start off as very civil conversations, but very, very quickly, it would get to him telling me his view of what was right and wrong and what was wrong with my thinking. And um, at some point very early on, I said, I don't think you're listening to me. Do you even need me in the room? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he admitted it. And, um, and I admitted, you know, I was kind of doing the same thing back to him and it was unproductive and silly. And all it does, what does is, you know, inject venom into the relationship. <clears throat> and so we both decided, okay, when we talk about this kind of thing, we have to do it from a different approach or we're never gonna talk about it again. And it took us quite a few months to feel comfortable with each other enough to talk about it in a way that, as Aaron said before, yeah, Bill, you're actually right on that point. I'm still a Catholic, but you're right on that point. I agree with you. And, I, and it doesn't make me feel like a traitor to you know, yeah. my beliefs. Yeah. And then, and it took him a little while longer to get to the same place, <laughs> admittedly, yeah. but, but that's, what, that's what we feel people should be should be given permission to be able to do. It's not, a, it's not a game of winning and losing in a conversation. It shouldn't be, but that's what it is. It should be about, I really wanna understand your position. I'm, I'm less concerned about my position. I know what my position, I wanna understand your position and I'm not gonna try and change your mind. I yeah. wanna hear, I wanna understand. It requires a different skill though. It requires what, what's referred to as active listening. Yeah. So instead of listening and looking for um, these, these hooks, so uh, that, that you can then toss your, your talking points at um, or, or mischaracterize and misinterpret and generalize and villainize that you can listen well enough to understand and understand well enough to reflect back to that person what you think they're saying. Um, and that in the process of doing that is sort of this like self-imposed Jedi mind trick uh, because <laughs> you, you may end up being persuaded by understanding something. You may end up being persuaded, but I think that's a good thing because we all have these cores, these moral cores, uh, except for maybe Donald Trump. But, <laughs> but, um, but I said it, does, it, you didn't. It does, it, does take, it does take two to tango. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, you know, just convincing one person that this is a productive way to do things. Well, now you've got to go find another person who's willing to, to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody, somebody, you know, in a, in a funny way said, Conversation is really about waiting patiently for the other person to shut up so you can start talking. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's an awful lot of what things have turned into. You know, C.S. Lewis um, talks about prayer. Uh, he tells a story that uh, it was a debate that he was having with a friend. And, you know, you're, you're just uh, shouting to the heavens and, and it's going one way and nobody's listening. And, you know, I, and I'm messing up this story. He said it much more profoundly than I could. But he said, you know, if it was a one way, I do pray, um, you know, I have these conversations with God, you know, and, and I still believe that it's a, it's a two-way conversation. He has different ways of communicating to me through his word and through his revelation and through creation and all different kinds of ways. Um, but, you know, you may be right. It may be a one-way conversation, 
but if it was a one-way conversation, it was coming from God to me. So. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. that's okay. I'll that's take okay. that so one. I, so yeah. I had an Old Testament uh, professor at Baylor, because at Baylor, you're required mm-hmm. to take religion in order to graduate, like nine hours of it. And so he, he forced us in his class, or you didn't get a grade, is you had to argue both creationism and evolution. Oh. Oh, on both sides That's yeah. really good. before he allowed you to explain your personal position. That's great. And it was such an exercise in critical thinking That's great. and understanding someone else's point of view, because in order to admit that someone might have a point, you need to understand their point of view. Right. How long right. did he last at Baylor? <laughs> Actually, he was, he was unfortunately terminated and uh-huh. he was probably one of the best teachers I've ever had. Mm. I had a teacher like that. I grew up at a private Christian school and, and it was the same with our science teacher. It was the same thing, but he ended up being very well liked by the, the staff. Somehow he gained their favor for a really long time, but it was the same thing. He taught us to think critically and that stuck with me all these years. Yeah. Something that's missing in politics as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There's not much difference sometimes between politics and yeah. religion or how we, how we process them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we go, tell us one more time how we can find you, how we can find the, the Frank, I almost said the Lincoln Project, how we can find the Franklin <laughs> Project. And, uh, and Emily, you too, tell us how we can find you and what's next. So it's, Frank, it's franklinproject.us. Come see us, come visit us. Yeah, good stuff going on. And Emily, how about you? Um, what's next pod it's uh, on Twitter it's at what's underscore next underscore pod and you can find our podcast on any um, podcast platform comes out every Thursday terrific terrific this is such a edifying conversation subversively edifying and subversively (laughs) civil it was awesome (laughs) and look we're all still we're all still smiling yeah we're all still smiling So as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.